Hey everyone, I just wanted to say up front thank you so much for your support this past year. It has really, really made a huge difference. I honestly don't know how I would have made my bills and everything month after month without your help. That said, I do need to ask for a bit more. The insurance did cover most of the damage, but they didn't cover the hot water heater that happened to die during construction. Thank you, Duncan. And the contractor may have gone over by $7,000 or so. We're still discussing that. But beyond those overages, it turns out that living in a hotel for a year with all your things packed in boxes can get a bit expensive when it comes to feeding yourself and your family. And my financial situation wasn't great going into this because last summer I was having to run up my credit cards to pay for childcare because getting services for an autistic kid is really, really hard. I have successfully restructured those old debts, and I have a plan to keep things from going quite so badly this summer. And I'm making progresses on services in general, but this is all a slog. And then in the meantime, I just had to run the credit cards again just to get by. So all that is to say, I started a GoFundMe. I'll put a link in the show notes. Anything you can give will be greatly appreciated. That said, if you already donated or you can't donate, that's totally fine. I won't think any less of you. Of anyone out here, I understand the limits of capacity. There is still something huge you could do for me, though. Given how much I need, I have to get this out beyond just my immediate friends and family, and even out past the immediate fans of the show. So if you could donate, that's, that'd be great. But also, please share the link to the GoFundMe on your social medias. It will really help, I think. And hopefully by working together, we can get me and my family past this to some sort of stability, finally. That would be awesome. Also, if you were to call your senator or congressman and give them a, an earful about the accessibility of autism treatment, that wouldn't be terrible either. In terms of the show, I think we should be back on track now, more or less. Andrew is back, much to the relief of everyone who had to suffer through my editing for the last episode or so, so I should be able to get back to the monthly release schedule. I also have a few new Why Though episodes if you want to go over to the other feed and check them out. As a bit of insider info, Intelligent Speech is on track and getting going. We are past the part where I have to grind through sending cold contacts to keynote speakers while trying to get the website working, and we are on to the part where I get to invite all my friends and respected colleagues to participate in a fun nerd party and start the nerd party planning. Which, as a planner, I enjoy the nerd party planning. The event is going to be on November 4th this year, and we should start selling tickets in a month or so, so keep your eyes peeled for that. For my blessed, blessed patrons, I'm sure you are all well aware that I finally got the ad-free feed updated properly. I'm told it sends you an email every single time I upload an episode, so you all got about 87 emails over the last few months. Good times. In terms of other rewards, I'm going to try and catch up on that stuff this month. I need to get the store codes out and all that stuff. One thing I'll just announce here, and I will send emails as well, I'll try, but I'm going to do a video chat for the Aristocracy of the Mind level patrons on the 27th of June at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm going to try and finally start doing them monthly after that. I'll, uh, I'll announce dates as I go. I know this time won't necessarily work for many people, but, you know, my schedule can be a little bit limited. Uh, and hopefully we'll get enough people this time to have a good chat. Consider it office hours for the show that you have to pay money to get, which makes them not like office hours in many ways. I will try to send out emails about this soon to the relevant patrons. One note, I know a lot of you were patrons at the relevant level and then had to reduce your donations. 
And I never did a chat before because of the house and everything that's been going on. Anyone who at any point was at that level, you're still invited to participate for the foreseeable future. I'd like to make up for the lost time and your patience. Speaking of Patreon, today we have quite a few patrons to honor and praise, but this should be the last of the backlog. <laughs> so, first up we have Robert, who shall be known from henceforward as Earl Robert Pawnbroker, Redeemer of the Family Vase. Next up we have Jason, who shall be known as Sir Jason Goodnight, Hero of the Two Pie Shops. Next up, Joe, who shall be known from today to many future days as Duke Joe, Dubious Lunch Truck of the Nation. Next up, we have Matthew, who shall be known as Deposed Emperor Matthew Polymachus. You don't get that. Look up Emperor Monomachus. Now we have Philip, who shall be known as Archbishop Philip the Kindred. Next up, we have Laternich, who shall be known as Sir Laternich, Grand Admiral Commanding, Kansas City Home Fleet. Next up, Adrian, who shall be known as Lord Adrian Tyrannidus. Next up, Scott, who shall be known as Grand Duke Scott, Stinkius Mundi. Next up, Ethan, who shall be known from henceforward as Archbishop Ethan the Kinslayer. Next, Cordell, who shall be known as Viscount Cordell of the IHOP Hashbrowns. Next up, JWS, who shall be known as Cardinal JWS, Inquisitor General, Avenger of Kin. Next up, Chant who shall be known from henceforward as Friar Chant, widely renowned as the Thomas Aquinas of urinal design philosophy. Next up, Stav, who shall be known as Sir Stav, worthy knight and conqueror of the Mauve Giant. Well, maybe he wasn't giant, but he was particularly tall. Up next, Jason, who shall be known as Archbishop Jason, the totally normal priest. And finally, last but certainly not least, we have a donation from the Siecla podcast, which shall be known from henceforward as, hey, you guys, you should listen to the Siecla podcast. It's really good. Seriously, though, thanks, David. And thank you to everybody. Everyone who's donated and patroned in general, you're all awesome. Those who, in particular who donated in this past year when I was, like, not doing episodes, but everyone donated more, you guys rule. And uh, I, like I said, I really don't know how I'd have gotten past any of this without your help. And I'm not going to say no to any more help, but you guys just pass on the social media information like you guys have already done so much. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. If anyone else out there hasn't donated and thinks they might, that'd be awesome. But if if you're just here to listen, that's fine, too. You're you're why I do this. So thanks, everybody. And let's start an actual episode. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 88. The Secularish Government of Rome Last time out, we discussed the Society of Rome, and notably how the popes of Rome held on to the loyalty of their city during the early Middle Ages. This involved elaborate civic festivals, namely the famous processions of that time, 
but also a dense and elaborate administrative apparatus that ensured the food supply, helped the popes monitor the activities of local churches, provided patronage to local aristocrats, and helped organize the election of new popes. Some of these things require elaboration in today's episode, but I'd like to begin with a comment on chronology, and then a simple question, as is my want. Chronology first. I've been a little wishy-washy and wibbly-wobbly about my timey-wimey definitions in these background and society episodes, but I need to be a bit more clear for our purposes today. As we shift the clutch from gear social history to gear narrative, we need to line up the chronologies to avoid stalling the podcast. Does that make metaphor make sense to anyone? Am I the only one who's driven manual? I like driving manual, but I guess the computers are more efficient now. Anyway, for the purposes of these episodes, let me establish the following periodizations. I'm going to call the period from Charlemagne's crowning in 800 to the crowning of Guy III as emperor in 891 the Carolingian period. The period from Guy III's crowning to the crowning of Otto I in 962 we will call the period of civil war. And then the period after that, we'll just call the Etonian period for our purposes in these next two episodes, because I'm not really going to get into much past that, because that's for episodes after that. I'm saying this not because the rulers of the empire necessarily had any sort of influence or claim over Rome. That's an issue we will discuss in more detail next episode. But just because we covered the emperors already, and this gives us some time periods to hang our hats on before we move into the actual papal chronology. I'm also doing this for my own mental well-being, because my two major sources, Thomas Noble and Chris Wickham, cover slightly different time periods. Chris Wickham discusses the period from 900 to 1150, give or take a few hundred years in each direction, while Noble covers a period that is something like 700 to 900, again, give or take a few hundred years in either direction. These are complementary periods in terms of my goal of looking at pre-Etonian Rome, and they have complementary subjects, as Wickham presents more of the social structure of the city, while Noble focuses on the political structures. But of course, that leaves me trying to cobble together a picture of a city from different time periods and trying to identify where things overlap and where they don't. I think I did okay. Just know that creating a chronology was more important to my brain in this episode than it usually is. And I'm going to try and keep that off you guys, because I know dates are tough, but that's what I needed to do. As a podcast footnote, I love Wickham, I do, but this book does some kind of annoying things. Things like saying that he isn't going to go into the political structures of the city because Noble already did that, you know, he actually said Noble already did that, and then proceeding to say throughout the book how the structures Noble described were probably not real anymore by his time period, and that not necessarily elaborating on what they had been replaced with or anything that was going on. I think I figured it out. And I still like these books, and I still like Chris Wickham, but gah. End podcast footnote. So much for chronology. Now for the seemingly simple question that leads into an existential crisis. What services does a government need to provide in order to be a government, and who needs to provide them? I'm going to skip through some of the pontificating today and just skip to the part where I say that every society defines the answer for themselves, and that how you define your specific answer also involves how you personally define things like what a government is and private versus public power. Suffice it to say, often in history, societies have had different answers to this question and have more or less successfully privatized or publicized different elements of the responsibilities that you might come up with. That said, let us go on a flight of whimsy if we can. And in an abstract, take the standard Western assumption that a government governs because it ensures that society provides and receives certain benefits, and that if those benefits are not provided, the society will gradually start to lose faith in the government. 
So, given that somewhat parochial definition, what are those benefits a government must provide? The standard answers to this question are generally based on what individuals need to live their lives. And, you know, again, these answers are going to be affected by your political stance. Some would just say security. But I think a more thorough answer is that people need from their society the basics that they as individuals need to live. They need food, water, and shelter. But of course, mere survival is not enough. People need a sense of security in those basics. We are hardwired to plan ahead, for hopefully obvious survival reasons, and so we need to have some expectation that our food, water, and shelter are not going to be yanked away from us at any moment, and if we don't have the security, we will tend to start taking steps to ensure that we get this security, come hell or high water, because, you know, we can sort of see things coming, and even if I'm fine today, maybe I won't be fine tomorrow, and that's also a problem. And that's, to a certain extent, that's how we are programmed. Speaking of programming, take it as a given that when I am saying that I, as an individual, need food, water, and shelter, I also mean that I need those things for my family, friends, neighbors, etc. We rely on social networks to help us survive by making it more likely that we as individuals can get food, water, and shelter, but it is so essential to the survival strategy of human beings, you know, beings without claws or big teeth or anything like that, just a lot of soft, soft, easily eaten flesh, we require other people to thrive mentally. We're hard wired to be social creatures because we need it to survive, and as such, we do things to make other people want us to be part of their society. As a result, we're prone to sacrificing individually for the people we love. In practical terms, in terms of our behavior, we subsume our identities into these groups, such that from a social standpoint, our identity as individuals and these atomic social structures are effectively one and the same. We can move and find new chosen families and new homes as conditions require it, but wherever we are, we humans need love and support, and we also need to provide love and support, and will often do so to the last extremity. In any case, this all means that a society needs some predictability in the economy that provides resources, as well as physical security from those who might seek to take those resources away from an individual or a family or a, a wider group. Protecting that physical security requires a process to ensure law and order, and on a practical level, the consensus of individuals in a society need a mechanism to ensure resources and justice are administered in a way that's not existentially threatening. What's the point of having a structure that protects you from thieves and marauding barbarians if that structure just thieves from you and barbarians at you? Given the topic of today's conversation, we should probably also take seriously the need of society for a sense of spiritual or psychological well-being, that there's order in the world, and that everything is basically going to be okay. But that is sort of an, just an elaboration on the need for security. And let me just close off by saying that once a government of some kind comes into being, that government is almost always the authority which is seen as competent ne to negotiate with other governments and deal with outside threats in addition to inside threats. In our last episode, we saw that the papal administration, far from merely seeing to the spiritual needs of the people of Rome, had a major hand in most of the services I just outlined. The Pope's administration directly ensured the production of food on estates around Italy, and that the food was imported into the city for distribution to people of all classes. This network was supplemented by a private economic system that existed within the extensive Agro Romano of Rome, that grew food and harvested resources in the Roman hinterland and sold them in the city. But even this system was something of a public-private partnership, as control over the land and resources was a part of the aristocratic patronage system that was ultimately controlled by the Pope. The Popes made major investments in infrastructure and had control over foreign relations, 
as we will discuss in the next episode. But one major service was missing or only tangentially discussed in our last episode, namely security, justice, law and order. These functions were ultimately under the control of the Pope as well, but were not administered by the clerics. And this brings us to today's main topic, the aristocracy and the lay administration of the city. To understand this, I think it makes sense to start with a review of the old Eastern Roman administration from the time of the Italian Wars. One of the key positions created at that time was a dux, or duke of Rome. This was the key administrator of the city, overseeing all the executive functions of a metropolis in terms of leading the security forces, making sure the aqueducts ran on time, and administering justice. Ultimately, the dux of Rome was subordinate to the exarch in Ravenna, and the exarch was sort of like a regional governor, overseeing all of Italy, but with all the powers of the emperor, and was the general in command of the professional troops of the Eastern Roman Empire. As you know from our previous episodes, however, this administration was not a priority for Constantinople, and was basically left to fend for itself. Unfortunately, the under-resourced and prolonged conquest of Italy had left Italy a burned-out husk, and cultural differences between West and East meant that the administration of Italy by Constantinople was not as welcome as everyone had figured it was going to be going in. The citizens of Italy and the administrators from the East were both loyal Romans and wanted the empire to come back together, by all accounts, but those same accounts strongly suggest that the Eastern administrators saw themselves as reimposing civilization on a half-barbarous, conquered population. They insisted on speaking Greek and using Eastern Roman legal codes, and hiking taxes quite a bit on a population that had just been ruined by a horrible war, and ignoring the fact that the Italians were almost all descendants of Roman citizens. Indeed, they saw themselves as arguably the real Romans here, since they had a Rome over there. And the reality was that their legal system had as much claim to being a Roman legal system as the Eastern Roman ones did. It hadn't changed all that much since the empire fell, and was arguably just as Roman as the Eastern system. It's worth pointing out that the reforms of Justinian hadn't really taken full effect yet, because the Italian wars happened during Justinian's reign. So both these legal systems were effectively common law systems, both a nightmare of conflicting rules that were supposed to be resolved by precedent, and precedent happens often on a local scale. So they had drifted from each other since the empire separated, but one was just as Roman a legal code as the other, something that the Eastern Roman administrators maybe didn't want to look at. As icing on this cake, the first wave of administrators sent by the East were considered remarkably corrupt even by the Roman standards of the time, and while they were eventually replaced, it wasn't fast enough to prevent lasting damage to this relationship. And so, with no support from Constantinople, with few local resources available, and with limited political cooperation to gather the resources that did exist, the Exarchs were forced to deal with the Lombard invasion, and all that that implied. Ultimately, they were forced to economize and economize until the professionalism of the Roman army in Italy had faded into a glorified militia. Now, I should define my terms here because this is important. A militia is a force of local residents who have other jobs, but can be called upon in a crisis to form military units. They're volunteer forces that train irregularly, often without much urgency, and whose members often do it for the prestige of playing soldier. This gives them the advantage of being very cheap, and in some ways can be a nearly democratic empowerment of a certain part of the population. As a result, militias have a great reputation in U.S. mythology. This reputation in turn is partially based on the self-reported success of the Greek city-state militias. But the reality is that no less a figure than George Washington said that militias are nearly worthless, and really only one step above just not having a military at all. And it's not a big step. 
As a result of their lack of training, they really can't fight professional soldiers in open battle, at least not one-on-one, and the very fact of their cheapness also ensures by definition that they are logistically awful. Self-supplied equipment can be haphazard, any system to supply them has to be set up on an ad hoc basis, there is limited discipline, and while most of these issues can be resolved with experience over time, the very short enlistments of militias ensure that that usually doesn't happen. This is not to say that individual militia members are bad. They're as good as any other raw recruit. It's just that they don't have the systemic advantages to make them into soldiers. Even citizen soldiers, such as the conscripts of Europe and the United States in the 20th century, for example, had the benefit of training and logistics provided by a professional military before they went into combat. A militia system does not provide that, and as a result, only rarely in history have militias been really effective from a military standpoint. Usually militias are only effective when the entire population of an area is united and enthusiastic about a campaign, and the goals of the campaign are clear and immediate, and the enthusiasm allows the rulers of the society to glaze over some of the more problematic aspects of militias. Like, if everyone's super enthusiastic and has high morale, then maybe people won't listen to the fact that they have short enlistments, and no one will complain. Major historical exceptions, like the Athenian militias or the Republican armies of Rome, tended to work because of the fact that their societies are so militant that the population of the area as a whole basically become fully trained soldiers due to repeated hands-on military experience. So why bother with militias? Well, if you have an alternative, you don't. But militias can serve a few functions. First of all, as I said, they are very, very cheap. Depending on the time and place, the soldiers are either not paid at all, or else paid very little, at least during the periods where there isn't a war on. Also, they usually have to provide their own equipment and food, which effectively not only ensures that their supply is not paid for by the government, it also avoids the need for the taxation, purchase, and distribution mechanisms required to supply a professional military. This makes the logistics of maintaining a militia very cost-effective. And, if all you need is to have someone patrol a wall every now and again, or defend that wall against barbarian attacks, or maybe go outside the wall and poke at some bandits, militias can do that job well enough. After all, their homes are behind the wall, and so they have as much incentive as anyone else to do a decent job as they can. And if there isn't a crisis, well, the militia members do other stuff that they do to make a living and you don't have to pay them. Theoretically, this lets you spend the savings on other important things, like, you know, a wall. There is one other thing that militias are good for. Beating up civilians. They may be poorly trained and equipped from the standpoint of real soldiers, but against, say, a rioting mob, at least the militia has weapons and a rudimentary officer structure. If you aren't facing a mob, but, say, you need to get a few guys to go grab someone and drag them in front of a magistrate, militiamen can do that. And if you need some people who are basically physically fit to beat up someone in a back alley, well, good news. The militia's got you covered. When you combine their cheapness with their ability to beat up civilians when needed, you get to the main function of militias historically. They are a great way to hold land, at least so long as no one else is trying too hard to take it. They can basically protect private property, ensure that really obvious crime is prevented, and see off bandits every now and again. Basically, they can preserve order well enough to retain the status quo, though obviously not to the standards of modern policing or border security. Actually, the relationship between militia members and the status quo is another key thing about militias worth noting. As we are talking about a bunch of dudes who have the free time and money to provide their own weapons and go train with their buddies without getting paid for it, we are generally talking about people who are at least basically comfortable. Depending on the time and place, this can mean anything from artisans to aristocrats, 
and such individuals can certainly have a range of relationships to political power structures. Their loyalty definitely can't be taken for granted, as we saw in sort of, you know, the French Revolutionary Wars. But that said, they can be assumed to have some sort of stake in the local community as it currently functions, and probably aren't going to want to burn everything to the ground and start society from scratch. So with all that said, let's get back to early medieval Italy. As the Eastern Roman Empire declined, it was local leaders who took the initiative to keep at least some semblance of a military force going. This had a number of benefits for them. Beyond getting to play at soldier and protecting their own goods and families, and getting people saying good job to them in the street, turning out a part of a military force meant the civic authorities were grateful to them. They might owe them a favor. And because society was in a constant state of crisis, really active members of the militia were generally kept around sort of just all the time as the government did its thing. So at court cases or important meetings, they might be there acting as guards, calling in recalcitrant defenders, or just being involved in decision-making because leading the militia made them somewhat important and probably one of the only government officials who was willing to show up that week when everything was burning. This meant that they would be around when, say, important political posts opened up or the administration of fertile tracts of land came up for grabs. As such, people who had been local leaders just relatively well-off at the start of the early Middle Ages in Italy had opportunities to participate in the local political administration as a result of their participation in the militia. That participation helped raise their reputation more, and also allowed them to go from being somewhat well-off to absurdly rich over the course of a century or two. This process happened all over Italy in general, particularly in the Eastern Roman holdout areas of the Exarchate, and particularly, particularly in Rome. Some of this rise in wealth was due to things we would see as graft and corruption, but that's not really the basis for the kinds of absurd fortunes I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about really brings us back to those smaller Roman churches I spoke about last episode, the ones given land by the popes that they then leased out to aristocrats. If you happen to be a militia leader that happens to know that a particularly good bit of land is going up for lease, and you have the means to take that lease, well, that's a way to start getting richer just from being in the room. Once you have become a local militia leader who is also a well-respected landowner and magistrate, churches may feel like just giving you pieces of land in return for your help in legal cases, or to help ensure that none of the local criminal gangs mess up their properties. And as a result, the militia member gets richer. Now, speaking of criminal gangs, that gets us back around to graft and corruption. Because militias are not, as a rule, particularly susceptible to centralized control. They tend to follow locally popular leaders because they're popular, and because their lack of pay means that the central government hasn't actually got much leverage over them. As the militias were the city's law enforcement mechanism, this meant that each locally popular civic leader could gather military power around themselves. As such, the families of local aristocrats could function as something somewhere between a real civic government and an organized crime family. As with so much about the government of the Middle Ages, this would be deeply threatening if it happened in a modern state, because the provision of order by private interests not accountable to the population is wildly open to abuse by the powerful, even more so than in the case of a government, arguably. But in the absence of any other state institutions to actually protect law and order or provide local government services, these semi-legitimate organizations actually provided stability and government of a kind for the people who lived in their areas and who didn't have any better models for stable social organization. In other words, it's not like the residents of Rome had a choice between Scandinavian democracy and the sort of patronage-addled hellstate I'm describing. The choice was between patronage-hellstate and complete and total anarchy. 
Because humans will fight tooth and nail for even a modicum of stability, the development of such low-level local organization systems are almost inevitable, especially in urban areas. And while most people had to pick a patronage system to join to avoid unpleasant things, at least they were protected once they joined, and things could be somewhat stable so long as the different families didn't start feuding. Which they inevitably did, thus making Rome and the other cities of Italy tiny versions of the feudal countryside, with different noble families controlling turf from fortified strong points in a constant state of simmering low-level conflict and seeming apt to fly apart and descend into full-on civil war at any time. Needless to say, the statistics I cited in an earlier episode about crime rates in medieval society being astronomical by modern standards can be assumed to be true here. Let's say a minimum of 50 violent deaths per 100,000, give or take, during peacetime. So obviously the order that the militias protected would not appeal to any of us. Shopkeepers would be expected to pay protection money in addition to taxes and rents. Different groups of militias would violently quarrel in the streets. Crimes against the wealthy and the important would be investigated with more energy than crimes against the powerless. But honestly, to a certain extent, that's just the baseline of how society functioned in all pre-modern societies, including ancient Rome. And really, only modern governments have found really serious ways to combat this, if not entirely solve it. Some cities in the Middle Ages were better governed than others, some polities were, but most of them were going to be closer to this than they are to us. I've covered much of this before, albeit not in quite so much detail about Rome. This story is basically the narrative for most of the cities in northern and central Italy, and patronage is just a building block of all medieval social systems. What made Rome unique in the Carolingian and pre-Carolingian period compared to other cities is that Rome, as we've noted before, had a relatively large hinterland and contained one metric pope. As a result of these things, the entire administrative structure that I went over last time existed on top of and beside the developing militia system, and that did a lot to balance out the corruption. While the patronage in some ways created a situation of hostile feuding clans with their own private militias, the locally important families were also deeply tied to the papacy for the very resources that let them function as private militias. And since, for both ideological and utilitarian reasons, the popes had an interest in Rome not being ridiculously unjust and tearing itself apart in a wasteful civil war over local resources, the popes used this influence to balance between the factions and hold the city together. By supplying legitimate resources, the wealthy families that controlled the neighborhoods had incentives to identify with the government, seek benefits for society as a whole, and keep violence in the city to basically a minimum, at least to the minimum practical in any sort of medieval society patrolled by corrupt paramilitary militias. A big part of this loyalty came from the fact that, for ideological and probably practical reasons, the papacy didn't directly involve its clerical administration with the legal system. Now that statement will need to be qualified later, but let's start there. The legal system of Rome was actually secular, which meant that there were a variety of offices available to administer the judicial system, offices that were filled by the Pope with members of the aristocracy. This had two benefits. One, more patronage. Yay, the Pope gave me money and I like him now. Two, the aristocracy effectively had a say in how the government was run and administered. If you want to take a cynical view, they could get their family members into these roles, and that would ensure that when they inevitably ended up in front of a court for their various nefarious practices, they could soften the blow. If you want to take a sunny view of it, it gave them surety that justice would be administered somewhat fairly between the aristocratic houses, and that they would have a say in how the government worked, and therefore might actually try for good government rather than trying to bring everything down to make money. Podcast footnote. 
Chris Wickham spends an awful lot of time describing the internal organization of the class structures in Rome. It was very boring, and I read it so you don't have to. Now, that's not entirely fair. It's actually very important stuff, but it's sort of more important for our future episodes, which does kind of tend to ding my morale when I'm reading. Anyway, let me give you a two-minute rundown of what he covered so you can sort of know what's going on later. In the beginning of this period, let's say the 700s, power gradually coalesced into the hands of an aristocracy, that sort of is what we're describing, that became a coherent class group. Over time, power was centralized within this group into the hands of a few families that the aristocracy essentially trusted to look after their shared interests. This wider, older aristocratic group gradually took less and less interest in competing for political offices, leaving things to those one or two families, and the valuable but contentious land in the city in the Agrimano sort of seemed like it was too much trouble, and they began assembling large estates in the wider Lazio region. This left space for a newer collection of landowning families to come to prominence. This new aristocracy began taking over leases and, to some extent, started taking on offices. This picture is somewhat complicated by a rather major, unrelated political collapse in the city around this time that we'll cover in future episodes. But as things came back together, it was the new aristocracy that had assumed leadership roles in the city and took over most of the land in the Agro-Romano leaving the old aristocracy politically and physically isolated at the top of the political system until they were eventually shoved out entirely and effectively physically exiled to the countryside. And then this process somewhat repeated, as the new aristocracy lost interest in competing for titles and focused on family wealth and management of their estates, leaving offices in the hands of people we might call middle-tier landowners or something like a gentry class. These families would focus on administering justice and doing their jobs well, since the local land was still being held by the new aristocracy, and this led them to form alliances with gasp horror artisans and people who actually did jobs. Together, this alliance would massively rock the political foundations of Rome with the rise of the commune, but boy, am I getting way ahead of us right now at this point. One last note about these noble families. Determining their membership can be difficult, which is part of why Wickham spends so much time on them sorting through documents. Partly, this is an issue of documentary survival, but a big part of it is also down to the role of women in Roman society. Man, women just really mess things up, don't they? Because the legal system was based on late antique Roman law, and not Justinian-style Roman law, women could and did inherit property and had extremely important roles in these clans. As a result, Clan membership was somewhat fluid, following both matrilineal and patrilineal lines. We can be sure that the people at the time absolutely knew what their clan was, though there may well have been an element of membership convenience. As in, my dad is just some guy, but my mom is the granddaughter of Senatrix Theodora, so obviously I'm going to follow the matrilineal line and use those connections to try and get a sweet, sweet gig overseeing a river barge mill that I don't have to ever visit. End podcast footnote. So as I said, a big part of the patronage supplied by the Pope was in the form of offices that tied the aristocracy of the city directly into the functioning of the civil administration. The structure here is a little complicated, and it changed over time, but it's very enlightening on the influences at work on the Roman society. Early on, the chief of the secular administration was the Ducks of Rome, as I said before. These men were originally appointed by the emperors in Constantinople, or by the exarchs in Ravenna. Over time, As imperial attention was pulled away, this job started going to local people with advice from the popes, and that amount of advice expanded and expanded until eventually it was the popes just directly appointing the ducks. 
By the time that happened, the local aristocrats had all sorts of incentives to give their loyalty to the Pope, rather than the Empire, which we'll get into more next time, but as I have already indicated, the Empire hadn't really made many friends in its tenure ruling Italy. Long story short, the papacy and the aristocracy formed a strong alliance whose main uniting factor, beyond money, was a deep and profound annoyance with the heretics and do-nothing rulers over in Constantinople. Using a series of political crises and under papal leadership, the government of Rome engineered a break from the empire, and effectively became what Thomas Notable calls the Republic of St. Peter. Podcast footnote. Noble goes so far as to call this a republican state. I think that he goes too far, but he and I have differences in terms of what constitutes a true state. His definition is more loose, and given my eventual intention to talk about the early modern period, I think I can be forgiven for wanting to be a bit more stringent. For those curious, my biggest difference with Noble is that he doesn't include the monopoly of violence in his definition of a state. This is pretty central to most modern definitions of a state, so while the Republic had a defined territory and a singular government, the fact that all these aristocrats were running around with private militias tends to disqualify medieval Rome in my eyes from statehood. It is a republic, though, as we'll see. End podcast footnote. As we'll get into next time, leaving the empire was all fine and dandy, but this left Rome surrounded by Lombards, and without even the threat of help from the east. As we know from earlier episodes, they resolved this problem by allying themselves with the Frankish Empire, the most pivotal moment being when the Pope crowned Charlemagne as Roman Emperor in 800. For now, though, I want to stick with the way this impacted the development of Roman secular institutions. Now, a lot of evidence here comes from later on. While Rome is special in giving us documents well before many other European cities or societies, this means that the documents kick in around the year 920, rather than us having to wait until the year 1100 or so. Since we're talking about the year 800 or even 700, this means that our really good evidence is for more than a century after the Republic's foundation. So some of what I'm about to say is educated speculation on the part of me and my sources, but I think you'll at least agree that the conclusions are plausible and interesting. The evidence we have from the 920s to the 950s is that there were some major changes after the city went rogue. As I said earlier, the Dukes had been the supreme secular ruler of the city, with control over military and civil affairs, as was common in the late empire. By 950, the title had been heavily diluted. By that time, numerous nobles were given the title Dux Romanorum at the same time. Another title had emerged at some point, the Magister Militum, who was just a military leader, a very important one, but again, that we find that several people had this title by the 950s, and their civil authority seems to be gone. And just to say it so I can say it, we have very little understanding of the official structure of the militia. We just know it was there, and the Magister Militum was somewhere near the top. So it seems like the title of Dux and all its powers probably became sort of a puppet position to the popes, you know, once you have two rulers of a city with the same powers and one of them has all the loyalty and the other one's appointed by the first one, well, you know how that's going to go. Eventually, the popes took away the power of the Dux and started handing out the title as non-horrific. Actual military power was given to the lesser title of Magister Militum, but the title wasn't centralized. The popes would have several generals at the same time, and the post had little or no civic power. Having several generals could have been to placate feuding families or to avoid one family gaining way too much power. Either scenario or even both is plausible, we don't know the specifics. The financial roles once held by the dukes seem to have devolved onto a person called the Vistarius. This person directly controlled some of the papal estates as their salary, and controlled the functioning of, effectively, the treasury. 
However, this role too was watered down over time as the final major role developed, the urban prefect. The urban prefect was essentially the pope's designated second-in-command. Think something like a grand vizier or a prime minister. They ran the day-to-day -day operations of the city in consultation with the pope. Depending on the pope in question, the urban prefect could have more or less power, but the pope was always really the one in control. There were plenty of mechanisms to ensure that the pope maintained personal links with the public to avoid the prefect completely taking over, although there were a few times when they kind of came close. But that's for future episodes. Suffice it to say, for now, that the Pope presided directly over numerous functions that could be delegated to the urban prefect, but often were not. There are two key mechanisms of rule that I have in mind here. The first is the Curia. This was basically the papal court in the royal sense of court. An entourage made up of powerful people, surrounding a person who made decisions. But because the Pope had direct and uncontested authority over the clergy in the city, the Curia came to be seen as the place where major disputes within the clergy went to be judged and ultimately to be the executive function of the entire papal administration. The word becomes ambiguous, being used in both senses simultaneously in the 1100s, depending on context. Curia, the formal court of highest religious appeal, but also Curia, the informal grouping of Pope's entourage, assembled in an ad hoc way to judge civil cases emerging from the city of Rome. Both those things were used interchangeably. There is undoubtedly overlap in these circles in terms of personnel and concepts of authority as well. For our purposes, in the Carolingian period and before, we should just assume the Curia was a combination of both ideas, with maybe a little bit more reference towards them being an ad hoc group of friends. The Pope had an entourage of major political leaders within the clergy and the city, and when disputes arose in the administration, they were brought to the Pope. He would consider the situation, probably discuss it with those around him, and make a decision. This was all, so to speak, done in public, and so this was part of the process of a medieval leader being seen to rule. But the Curia was not really for civil cases or justice. It sort of became that later, but at the time we're looking at, those functions of the papal administration happened in a venue called the Placitum. The Placitum can be thought of as halfway between a law court and a political assembly, sort of like the House of Lords used to be when it had power. This assembly brought together basically all the important people in the city. Some of these were defined roles and had to be there, namely the seven palatine judges and the court president. The president was the pope, or a delegate, normally the urban prefect in most situations. The seven palatine judges included some of the major notorial figures I discussed last time out, but also included entirely secular figures, and in any case none of them had to be clergy, strictly speaking. The Placitum also included Davidi Eudices, or lawgivers, who were essentially legal experts there to remind everyone about the existing legal precedents of the chaotic late antique Roman legal system. These men were chosen on a case-by-case -case basis, but there was usually more than one, and they were always people with recognized legal expertise. Legal expertise had become, and was increasingly, seen as a major signifier of social status and rank of being part of the aristocracy, and just sort of something needed for anyone who had any kind of social ambition in Rome. As a result, we can assume that Rome had some sort of ongoing educational institutions to help train people in the law, but we don't know anything about them. Yay! Rounding out this picture, the Placitum also always had a variable number of nobiles in attendance. In other words, aristocrats, who had no official role beyond witnessing any documents signed, and it seems 
that their presence was needed to legitimize the procedures. If you held a placatum and you didn't have any nobles as witnesses, well, it maybe wasn't legitimate. But that said, none of these nobles had an official role, you know, and no one was required to show up on a given day. Finally, there would also be the adstantes, who were generally people with some interest in the case, but who were also men of some standing who may have had something to contribute. This means they were all some species of rich and respected, but could be, gasp, non-aristocrats, including representatives of the Scola. Podcast footnote. I need to talk about the Scola, but I don't think I'm going to get to do it anywhere else, and I'm really not going to get to do it in as much length as I'd like. So here we go, podcast footnote. Scola are often cited as the progenitors of the guilds in Italy, though some scholars, including Wickham, are nervous enough about the quality of the records making that link that they keep these claims somewhat at arm's distance. The word scola just means school, but in this case, it's a fairly old rendition of the word. One of the first scola may have been actually the collection of lower-level notaries and clerics working in the papal administration, which would sort of explain the use of such an education-oriented word, since they're all literate people. But ultimately, a scola was more like a club. They were loose social organizations that represented professional groups or people with shared concerns, and usually non-noble professionals. By this time in our story, the Scola had started taking on some responsibilities in the city, but they were still very loosely defined organizations without written charters or any of the strict rules that would come to define guilds later on. That said, the proliferation of these groups does show us a lot about how highly developed the Roman economy was, relatively speaking, I suppose and tells us a bit about what jobs were happening in the city. Ironworking and tanning are strongly attested, but also orchard workers, the salt makers, the carpenters, basically all the major employment groups within the whole agro-romano had some sort of professional organization by this time. That does suggest that, you know, things were going okay, economy-wise. End podcast footnote. The Placatum would hear cases from complainants, hear witness testimony, get advice from their legal experts, discuss the case, and ultimately make a decision on what should be done. We don't know all that much for sure about this process, since our evidence comes from the documents written down at the end of the process, which seem to have been somewhat formalized and depicted maybe an idealized version of what happened. In any case, the decision would be written down and witnessed by those present, and then ideally acted upon. Whether it was acted upon, in fact, seems to have depended an awful lot on the willing compliance of the parties involved, because this is, after all, the Middle Ages. That said, in our records, usually people are pretty okay with taking the Placatum as a official, legitimate source of governing power, and so they eventually do obey, though sometimes they have to be reminded a couple of times. There is a rich seam of records depicting these decisions, and from them we learn that the Placatum met very regularly, possibly monthly, and it had no set location, though the majority of the records are either from meetings at St. Peter's or in the Lateran. And it seems pretty clear that this kind of decision-making in public, in front of an assembly, was seen as fairly key to the legitimate administration of Rome. This, combined with the uh, electoral process for popes and other collective decision-making things we have evidence for, is a big part of why Noble calls Rome a republic, and while I tend to agree, it's certainly Republican in flavor at this time. Now, one conversation is about whether every case in Rome made it in front of the Placita, 
it seems kind of inefficient. It was a really large body of wealthy and important people who had to gather once a month. And presumably there were more cases and criminal cases than could deal with once a month in a city the size of Rome. Some historians have suggested that smaller tribunals must have taken place, though there also may have been informal courts held by local leaders, or there may have been some other form of judicial authority going on. On the other hand, some of the cases in the Placita records that we have, which, you know, survived like a thousand years, seem to be genuinely minor cases, so it may be that it was genuinely open to all, and people were less lawsuity. In any case, the need for an assembly-based judicial system is interesting. There's a very old debate as to whether modern democratic institutions derive more from the orderly Greek and Roman Republican tradition, or from the noble savagery of the democratic Germanic tradition with its things. Just the way I've phrased that should make it clear how much I sort of hate the implications of this debate, infused as it is with early 20th century nationalist discussions that are sort of neither here nor there at this point. But there are interesting nuggets in the discussion, and this issue with the Placitum is kind of one of them. Obviously, Rome had a tradition of assembly politics in the form of the Senate, a body that kept meeting even after the fall of the Western Empire. But we do know it stopped meeting at some point, and in southern Italy, it was replaced by a legal system based on inquests, presided over by a single individual, the idea being that one person with legal expertise is needed to make decisions in a court case. You can't just leave this up to a bunch of amateurs. The structure of the Placitum seems much more similar to the diet-based systems of the Carolingian Empire, and the timing certainly works out. As I said, we see our written evidence of the Placitum starting in the 920s, and there are similar bodies throughout all of northern Italian area ruled by the Franks. Frankish rule in Italy started in 800, so you've got, you know, 100 years and change for influence of some kind to move into Rome. This importation of Germanic assembly-based politics and legal systems is one of the big differences between southern and northern Italy in the Middle Ages. There's a bunch of reasons why this is an important thing to think about. One of the big conversations we're going to be having over the next season is that Rome was not supposed to be ruled by the Carolingians. Supposedly, it was an independent entity. Charlemagne himself guaranteed this, and his heirs did as well. The degree of this independence is another issue of long and violent historical debate, for reasons we will see in this season of the show. But if Rome was arguably not directly ruled by the Franks, could this be evidence of a legal system shaped by cultural influence, but influence that was not entirely total? Maybe there is some sort of hybrid of southern and northern Italian legal systems. Could it be that the Placitum represents a higher diet-influenced court of appeals, while smaller-scale issues were judged based on an inquest-based system of singular judges? It's a really interesting idea, and based on the evidence we have, it could be true. But Chris Wickham poses this question only to dismiss it by saying we lack positive evidence of this case, and I think... I'm already doing the same here as I type this out. Whoa, meta. In any case, what Chris Wickham says, and I agree, it's tempting to infer the existence of smaller-scale inquests, but there doesn't seem to be direct evidence of their existence at this time. Also, in terms of this debate about whether the Franks sort of imposed or influenced the Placitum system onto Rome, it's worth saying that Rome had been in contact with the Lombards long before the alliance with the Franks, and the Lombards were Germans. And it's not like no one in the city remembered the old Senate. Inscriptions were everywhere. People knew about this. So there's too many blanks in this story 
not enough positive evidence. And there's like three different various other alternatives, at least, that could come into play as alternative explanations for the rise of the placatum and how it functioned. Basically, what I'm saying is what we can say definitively is that Rome, undoubtedly influenced in some way by the Franks, but it's not clear how much, adopted an assembly-based legal system sometime during the Carolingian period and before the real records kick in. We can't really say too much more than that on this issue. Over time, the Placatum justice system broke down, leaving two avenues for justice, private arbitration and direct appeals to the Pope, and we have written evidence of both. These ended up often looking very similar, as the appeals to the Pope usually involved a tribunal in front of the Curia, whose main task often ended up being determining that there was a case, and then fobbing it off on an agreed arbiter. This system shows the decline of institutions in this period, but may have had the advantage for all parties of ensuring that the arbiter was impartial, rather than getting stuck with whatever judge was assigned to the case, regardless of their affiliations in a highly fractious city. Also, it would have been a lot cheaper. But all that will be in a future episode. For now, let's just sum up and review the structure of the city's administration that we covered in the last two episodes. Law and order were overseen by the urban prefect, who worked with the magister militum to oversee the militias, and who presided over an assembly-based court system, along with a fairly large number of aristocrats. This, and other civic positions whose functions are less clear, ensured that there was a big bucket of government appointments that not only ensured the various aristocratic clans could get patronage, but also ensured that they had a say in the city government if they wanted it. On the ground, law and order was quote-unquote, enforced by the militias controlled by the various aristocratic fractions. As we covered last time, the city was also administered by the clergy, who oversaw the material welfare of church buildings, charitable works, and the city's food supply. There was some major overlap in terms of roles like the defensor, who sought to protect the interests of the poor and who had a seat in the placatum. And there were other members of the placatum that also sort of were on both sides of the fence, but a key factor here is that these were separate systems with their own goals and their own systems for identifying and inducting and training new members. The secular administration drew recruits from the members of the aristocratic clans that controlled the militias. The clergy recruited more widely. At the start of our era, a large number of Greek, Levantine, and Egyptian exiles fleeing various heresies joined the church. To their number, you can add people who were poor but promising locals and the occasional member of the aristocracy. In this way, at the start of the Republic, there were some semi-distinct populations in terms of the aristocracy and the clergy that shared power in Rome as they separated from the Eastern Roman Empire, fended off the Lombards, and formed their major alliance with the Franks. These populations were working in cooperation at this time. By the time of the crowning of Charlemagne, however, this was changing. I will get into more detail in future episodes, but the aristocracy increasingly was infiltrating the clergy sending token sons into the papal administration and using their secular influence to push their clerical careers. While all those who joined the clergy were indoctrinated into what policies were in the best interests of Rome as a whole by simply spending their careers in the administration, there was still a key interest in getting control of the papacy to aid in the distribution of patronage, and, you know, even if you've spent your lifetime in the clergy, you still have at least some loyalty to your family. This has resulted initially in periods of strife between pro- and anti-aristocratic factions. By the end of the Carolingian period, the membership of the clergy was essentially indistinguishable from the nobility, and inevitably factions formed to fight over which specific aristocratic clan ought to control the papacy. 
But wait, how did you control the papacy? Well, I'm going to leave a detailed discussion of that process for the next episode. In that episode, I will also attempt to speedrun the foreign relations of the papacy from their split with the Eastern Empire to the rise of the Etonian dynasty. I assure you that these two things do actually belong together. And then in two episodes, I will begin a narrative of the popes from the time of Otto up to the time of Henry III, and that will take a number of episodes, I'm not sure how many yet. There's a lot of interesting stuff coming, and I think you will enjoy it as much as I have. So, I will see you then on the next episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.